To date in this podcast, our episodes have featured experienced leaders reflecting on how they leave their employees better than they found them. Today, we shift gears a bit and learn from a leading academic in the field of management, Dr. Ryan Quinn, Associate Professor of Management at the University of Louisville. Ryan is the co-author of the book, Lift, The Fundamental State of Leadership, and author of numerous journal articles, including his Harvard Business Review article, Why You Shouldn't Label People Low Performers. In our conversation, Today, Ryan draws on current research to provide tips for managers on topics such as the importance of a growth mindset for leaders and how to foster that mindset, why it's important to not label our employees and some advice for those whose company's performance management systems ask them to label employees as part of their talent review process, how leaders can work backwards from virtues such as courage, love, and forgiveness to transform their leadership effectiveness. My name is Pete Longhurst and I'm joined by my co-host Marcy McKay. We're honored to have Ryan with us today. Welcome, Ryan. Could you start us off uh, by introducing yourself? Okay, sure. Um, So I am an associate professor of management at the University of Louisville. I also have two other roles here in the College of Business. Uh, One is I am the Assistant Dean of Innovation and Strategy and I am also the academic director of the Project on Positive Leadership. Uh, So that's a lot of hats, but um, they are mostly fun and I enjoy them. Um, And so I uh, teach in primarily, I've taught in all levels, but I teach primarily in our MBA programs, our leadership class, organizational behavior class, negotiations class. I do research on probably more topics than I should do research on. And so, uh, but I see a theme that hopefully others can see as well, which is I'm just interested in uh, what it takes to make an impact. And that's where my research lies. And, and, um, and then I also enjoy doing consulting or executive education and, and, um, and the administrative work that I have as well. So maybe you could tell us, you know, you've talked about um, your study in positive leadership. Could you maybe Tell us a little bit, kind of 101, what is what is this idea of positive leadership? Uh, a lot of people look at what it takes to get from negative to normal to acceptable. And then the positive is looking at what takes us from normal or acceptable or average to exceptional in some way. And so you could look at what does it take for me to go to the doctor and get better, right? That would be a norm, moving from the negative to the normal. And then you look at things like wellness or even like athletes who can do extreme things. And, and that's the exceptional and the positive. Um, and you can look at that in many other ways as well. So it's one thing to uh, get mentally healthy. It's another thing to flourish in your relationships and in the way you live your life. In the University of Louisville, where we've created the Project on Positive Leadership, we're also interested in the specific topic within organizational studies of leadership. And here I want to emphasize there's multiple uh, leadership is another very ambiguous word. And a lot of the way we talk about leadership is often about leaders, the individuals. Um, I'm going to say that what I focus on in the project on positive leadership is leadership as a process that mutual influence that happens between people, which may not involve being in a formal leadership position. So you can have people who are at the bottom of the hierarchy or who are just, 
a group of people in a social situation and somebody leads in that situation and others may or may not choose to follow. And I'm interested in what makes that process positive. And you can see there now I'm pushing towards that coordination again uh, as terms of how influence happens. And so um, I would say that in that distinction, there's a couple of advantages that we bring from scholarship to the practical world. And the first one is the one reason why this distinction matters is because when people get into leadership positions, we often think we have authority and then having authority, we over rely on that position and that authority to get things done rather than reverencing the humanity and the potential of the people around us and seeing it as our responsibility to re-win that authority over and over again, instead of just assuming mm. that that authority is what I have. The, uh, that's kind of the, the negative reason, avoiding, <laughs> avoiding <laughs> problems in terms of what leadership means. But the positive reason why I would say that this a focus on leadership as a process rather than as a, a position matters is because um, it helps us to win potential to un I even better unleash potential, right? So once I see leadership as a process where I'm, you know, winning the ability to have people follow me again and again, um, then I'm doing that because I'm trying to set the example of exceptional virtue that people want to follow because of how they feel around me, right? And that helps people to become what they might not otherwise be if I'm just directing them and telling them what to do all the time. Having said that, I, there are times when directing and, and telling people what to do is an important part of functioning in organizations. So I don't want to denigrate that, but I think we can also rise above that when we look at this process of, of positive leadership. That was long-winded. Hopefully I didn't take you too far on that. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. It's really interesting. I like that idea of, of being able to influence rather than demand sort of that engagement and and I'm kind of curious, have you found any really tactical behaviors that help do that and help bring that, um, that, in, that engagement or uh, to use your words, um, re-earning the position or re-earning the loyalty of the, the people that uh, you're working with? Because I think one of the things that we try to do is, is give our, our people those practical nuggets. What are the, the gems that they can take and apply today that I would like to take with me to work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let me give a little metaphor and then some nuggets, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so back in the 1980s, Donald Schoen from, uh, I believe it was MIT. Your listeners can correct me if I'm wrong. It's <laughs> an interesting work. And, and one of them was uh, called The Reflective Practitioner. It was a book he published. And the question he asked in the research that he did for the book was, what makes some professionals more artful in what they do than other professionals? Which is an interesting question. And so he went out and he studied like surgeons and architects and engineers and managers and educators and so forth and, and examined what they did. And his answer was interesting. He said, um, those who are most artful are those who reflect on their practice while they're engaged in their practice. They actually are thinking about what they're doing. And one of the things that causes people to reflect on their practice while they're doing their practice 
is that they see each time they engage in a practice as a new, as a first time. So if you think about that for a minute, imagine a surgeon, right? A surgeon, if I'm a heart surgeon, I follow the same steps every time I do a surgery, right? You put the person out, you cut them open, you break the rib cage. This is one particular kind of surgery, but you get the gist, right? Interesting analogy right there. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, you get the the gist, right? There's steps. And once you're a surgeon, you've done that 500 times. It's very easy to just go through the motions every time you do it. But his argument was that the most artful surgeons see every heart surgery as different than previous heart surgeries. Maybe it's because the age or the size or the type of blockage that you have in the heart or, you know, whatever it is. And and so they pay attention to the uniquenesses. And by focusing on the uniquenesses, it makes them more inclined to reflect as they practice instead of falling into this automatic action kind of mode. And automatic action is important. We couldn't survive without it. You couldn't walk if you had to think about your steps every time you took them, right? So there are important elements of automaticity that matter. But on that high level of what I'm doing, if I want to be artful in my professional practice, I've got to think while I do or before and after or whatever. I've got to see it as I'm, I don't stop learning or as the, the Buddhist would say is you have a beginner's mind, right? So um, that's my metaphor, and I'm going to take that now and apply it back to the leadership process. And that is, do I see each instance of leadership as unique, or at least the most important instances of leadership as unique? Maybe if it's every instance, that might be too much for the human mind to process, going back to automaticity. But um, do I see the most important instances of leadership that I have as, as unique? Am I treating them as different? Now, the reason now, this you might, you might see where I'm going with this in terms of nuggets you can take away for practice. One of the things that I do when I teach leadership with my students is I make them identify events where they're going to practice leadership. And then what we do is we ask, we identify, first of all, what virtues are most relevant to this? And by virtues, again, I'm back to Aristotle, right? So we're talking about courage or creativity or compassion or honesty or, you know, whatever it is. So question number one is what virtues are relevant? Because there's hundreds of virtues and every virtue isn't relevant to every situation or, you know, it varies at least. And then number two is once you've identified what are most relevant, what would it take for me to exemplify that virtue in an exceptional way in this situation? Those questions change how I think and act in this situation. And they do it uniquely as a beginner's mind rather than saying, here's the three answers that you should use every time you practice leadership. It's here's some questions. And if you think about these questions, because reflection and practice is what leads to artful professional behavior, then um, you're going to come up with different answers that will be uniquely applicable to these situations that you're in. Does that, is that a nugget? (laughs) It's a, it's a great nugget, right? And could you give us an example like to of, of a leadership situation where somebody might identify some virtues and then react? I know it's going to be different every time, but what's an, an example of that? Yeah. So um, I, since I, have, I make my students do this, I have lots of examples. <laughs> um, so I'll tell you, um, here's the first one that comes to mind. And this is for a lot of years based on the book that I co-authored with my father called Lift. Um, 
you know, we focus on some specific virtues in this case, but you can, like I said, it doesn't have to be these virtues. It can be other ones. Uh, I had a student in an executive MBA class once who said, you know, we hired this guy. Everybody was really excited about hiring him. Everybody got along with him great after we hired him, except for me. And I struggled to get along with him and I couldn't figure out why. And um, I just chalked it up to, you know, just some personality thing for a little while. And then one day I came back from being away from on vacation or something for a few days. And I found that there was a new wall in the office. <laughs> Literally, a physical wall had been built. <laughs> and to his credit, we had talked about that option as one of the options we might consider to address some issues in our workplace. But this new guy that we had hired had basically taken it upon himself to hire a contractor and have this wall built and hadn't asked me. And I don't think it asked the, you know, the managers between him and me either, you know, about building this. And, and he said, I had been a manager long enough now that I knew not to react in the moment. So I at least had that presence you know, with me. <laughs> but I took the, you know, my two direct reports and we went and had a meeting about what to do about this. And, um, he said, and, and what we did is we asked, all right, what are the virtues that are relevant here and how should we ask about them? And so one of the virtues that was relevant was uh, ambition, right? And so I often talk to my students about Robert Fritz's work about uh, asking what result we want to create because um, a typical response of managers is to go straight to problems rather than to purpose first. And so purpose is about ambition. How could I be even more ambitious about what I want to accomplish in this situation? And so um, we started and I asked what we want to accomplish. And he said, and it, what's interesting is even though he was trying to be purpose-centered, his first goal that he and his managers came up with was to fix this behavior, right? And that's what I want to do. But then he started to ask some other questions. And so he started asking questions about like compassion. You know, what would it, well, how does he feel and what is he trying, you know, like, why would he do this? What's his perspective and how does he feel about the situation? How about the other employees? What do they think about the fact and, and how are they going to feel based on our response to what happened here, right? Stopping and thinking empathy and, and how they feel and then thinking about integrity. You know, what are we telling people? And, and if, depending on what our reactions are <laughs> to this situation, are we really living what we say we live, you know, in terms of the values of our company and, and who we want to be? And they started asking these other questions. They said, one thing, interesting thing that happened as we walked through, you know, these virtues and use them to guide what we should do is our goal kept changing. <laughs> so at first our goal was how do we fix the situation? And then we said, you know, how can we be making better decisions? And then it came to, you know, how do we um, help our employees to learn to make good decisions for themselves? And then finally he said, actually, how do we get everybody to be like Tim? <laughs> Initially they started out thinking, how do we fix this guy? And by the time they were done, they realized actually, we want all of our employees to be initiative takers and to try to change things for the better. And what are we actually doing here and who do we want to be? And wow. so in the end, <laughs> what they did in the situation was that they, uh, first of all, they decided to streamline approval processes so that you could make, you could fill out a form in five minutes and get approval from one person so you could take action so that we could get things done faster and people would find it easier to take initiative but also make sure they communicate what's going on so other people know, right? And, and so they totally streamlined the approval process. 
And then the second thing they did is they went back to, and I, I made up his name, Tim, um, but they went back to Tim and they said, hey, great job on taking initiative. We have another project that's been languishing for a year or two. Would you take this one on? He's like, sure, happy to do it, right? And then when other employees saw these two responses, there was one employee who said, hey, can I get in on the project with Tim? Because I actually wanted to do that project. And other ones started taking their own initiative. And, and the whole approach changed in the organization. And they had people who were, you know, they would check in through the streamlined approval process. But people just started taking initiative in the organization. And as you can see, it was a, a, a significant culture change. Is that a good that's example? A great story. Yeah, no, that's a great story. Um, and I think it really lines up well with um, one of the articles that that you wrote about uh, not labeling people. Um, because I think that, that this showed in a positive light that you labeled him as an ambitious person and, a, and a, uh, somebody that's able to get things done. And that sparked sort of that, like you said, that community growth. Um, and, and I want to talk a little bit about the power of labels. Uh, how did you get into that, that, uh, research? Um, so I, it, it's labels and, and, um, uh, self-fulfilling prophecies and those kinds of ideas well predated me. So I don't want to take a lot of credit there, but I, <laughs> I what I, I would say is I'm very avid in my beliefs about their application. Um, and in fact, uh, one of the things that you sent in the questions was a question about performance management. And I think this is closely related to that idea. Um, I have become a big fan of uh, Carol Dweck's work on the growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Um, one particular study of that topic that um, is focusing on organizations is done by a friend of mine, Peter Heslin, who is a professor in Australia. And Peter did a fascinating study where he examined, so just to clarify for your listeners in case they're not familiar, a growth mindset is stated really simply, the belief that you're capable of learning and growing. And a fixed mindset believes I'm not capable of learning and growing. Um, and when you define it that simply, a lot of people think, well, duh, of course I have a growth mindset. And one of the things I like to do to check people on that is I'll say, have you ever said, I'm not a music person, or I'm not a runner, or I'm not a math person, right? Because if you've said that, then at least in that domain in life, you've had a fixed mindset, right? And so um, we fixed mindsets are more prevalent for a lot of us than we think they are. Peter examined measured fixed mindsets and growth mindsets in managers and then he uh, sh had them give feedback to an employee. I'm probably going to get some of the details wrong on the, the paper, but you'll get the gist of it. Um, had them give feedback and then had them evaluate those employees six months later. And it may have actually been more of experimental. So he actually showed them a video. So it was the same employee and he was controlling it and, and had them guess the progress over time or whatever it was to make it a good experiment. But the uh, point was, is he had them evaluate the employees six months later after the managers had seen evidence the employees had improved in the dimensions where they had been given feedback. And what was fascinating is that those with fixed mindsets rated their employees as not improving, even though they had evidence that the employees had improved. 
right? Whereas those with growth mindsets saw the improvement in their employees, were able to reward it and help mm. it and so forth. And there's other studies like that, but it's, it's, you know, a very, to me, a very revealing study, right? Because it says something about how labels reflect what we think and we tend to express what we think by labels. And so one of the things I love is uh, Carl Weick is known for talking about the importance in organizations of stamping out nouns and stamping in verbs. So when it comes to labels, maybe rather than saying we shouldn't use labels is what we should say is we shouldn't use labels for people, but use labels for actions and for strategies and for things that we do and, and that sort of thing, right? Use the verbs rather than the nouns. So as a manager, if I'm doing performance management, you know, if you go to classic feedback advice, it'll say, you know, focus on the actions. This you did well, this you did poorly, this, you know, whatever it is. Nowhere am I saying you are poor or you are good, right? I'm saying your action was good, your action was poor, um, and therefore this is what we should do about it, right? And by staying and labeling the actions rather than the people, I'm conveying that growth is possible rather than conveying that growth is not possible. I love, I love that, Ryan. And, and having been in HR for a long time in <laughs> <Corporate> America, <laughs> labels, we tend to want to put people in boxes, literally in the nine box, right? Like we literally put people in boxes. This is a high potential. This is a low performer. This is a, you know, whatever, every company calls it something different. So I'm a manager in a company that, that does, I mean, I'm not saying me, but if somebody, if a listener is a manager in a company who does this, which probably covers most companies, what do I do? Because HR is telling me I need to put a label on somebody. All right. So um, that is a, a tricky question. And um, I, let me do two things here. The first I would say is I would tackle that in a situation by situation way, right? So going back to our, you know, reflective practitioner idea that we took from uh, Donald Schoen, right, is I think the answer is going to be different, you know, like whether I'm working on, you know, making performance plans for people versus whether, you know, I'm, um, you know, helping build teams for project management or whatever, like the situations are going to be different in terms of how I deal with that. And so I don't think it'd be right for me to give one universal answer to that question. Mm -hmm. Having said that, um, we'll go back to nuggets and <laughs> some ideas that may or may not be helpful. Um, when you ask that question, the first image that came to mind, so before uh, you started recording, if I remember correctly, we were talking about like, you know, cheering the jazz on for the national or for the NBA championship. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll confess now uh, after the loss last night that I'm a Celtics fan. And um, <laughs> one of the things that I love about Brad Stevens is that the media is constantly trying to force him to put his players in boxes and he won't do it. Right. So for example, they're like, mm -hmm. you know, well, this person's going to be an all-star. This person's, you know, that person is going to be a role player or whatever else. And maybe they're right. But like his response is usually something along the lines of, um, well, I don't want to put a ceiling on my players, right? Um, now, on that note, having mentioned that, that reminds me of a story that uh, my brother told me, actually, um, where he said that uh, he was talking about an idea similar to the one that we've been talking about with labels, and the um, executives that he was meeting with were, and again, I'm 
going back on memory on this, so hopefully I get my details right on this story, but uh, the executives that were that he was meeting with were saying, you know, we really want to put these positive organizational scholarship principles into practice, but we have these constraints in our organization about what we're supposed to do thing. And the, the specific constraint they were talking about on this occasion was the, um, the rating system for employees. And I'm supposed to, you know, rate my employees on a curve in our company. And so that, you know, the force curve means that I have to do this or that. And um, so they were talking it through and my brother asked the executives, have you seen any exceptions to this? And there's actually one woman in the room. She goes, well, I actually don't do the force curve. And there's like, what? You know, like, how do you not do the force curve? And she says, you know, well, I actually, um, I am very detailed about like what my employees do. I set the expectations. I show, you know, where they exceed the expectations when they do, when they don't, I make it very, you know, like I'm super honest about it. And I tell my superiors and others who have influence on this process, you know, like periodically, like even though this is a yearly thing, once a month, I am sending up communications to the people who have control over this process in the organization, telling them the amazing things my employees are doing and, um, and signaling so that when I come up and my people don't fit in a forced curve, they're like expecting it. And so I'm constantly working ahead to manage the process. And the rest of the people in the, the breakout group were just like, what? <laughs> like it had never even occurred to them that there might be creative ways to work around the process. Now, like I said, that's a single example. And, you know, as a reflective practitioner, that will work for some situations. It won't work for other situations. Right. And so then I have to ask, well, what are the creative options in the other situations that I might try uh, for managing this? There will be some times when I have no choice but to cave in, right? And that's organizations. But those options may be less necessary than we sometimes think they are. If we're creative, if we're pushing the boundaries, if we're, you know, learning to manage in advance instead of uh, waiting in for the, to follow the dictums, you know, it requires proactivity for me to get ahead of situations like that and creativity. And you'll notice I'm starting to list virtues again, right? And so... <laughs> <laughs> these are the kind of things that, um, that, you know, a manager can anticipate and work towards in various ways. And I think actually the questions help here, right? So what would it mean to be exceptionally creative? What would it mean to be, you know, to consider the perspective and be empathetic with my um, managers while I'm also being empathetic with my employees? Well, and I think one of the, the nuggets that you, you gave uh, is about how we, talk about all of this because I know in HR we have a lot of shorthand that person's an exceeds and if we can even just change our language to be that person's performance is or that person's action was um, I think that actually from a psychological perspective could have a really big impact across an organization if we just change the way we talk about it Absolutely. I think that's huge, right? Because it's the cues that'll put us into a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And if we're attentive to those cues, we can, we can alter some or many of them in that way. You might be able to break things down, right? So if I have a nine box or if I have my uh, forced curve, or if I have, you know, whatever the tool is that the organization wants me to use, 
can I say, eh, let's focus on this by domain, you know, and say, hey, here's your performance by this domain and your performance by this domain and, you know, where I, I think you can grow and, you know, what, so like sometimes, you know, breaking a system down into its components makes it more accessible and makes me feel more empowered. Like I can do something about it. Whereas, you know, when I'm just in a system and I just throw the numbers or the people into a system, then it feels like this inevitable thing that I can't do anything about. I love that, Ryan. It's um, that's been one of my critiques of the nine box since I've been um, having to participate in it for many years. Is um, you get this one label? I'm a low performer, or I'm a high performer, but our jobs are complex, and we're complex, right? I might be a high performer. I might do this one part of my job really well, and I might do this other part of my job not well at all. So I love your idea of like, hey, let's. Let's break it down and let's talk about, because as an employee, you might be thinking, well, that's unfair. I'm just labeled low performer, but there are things I do well. It just seems unfair. It's it's just, it reduces me to a word versus yeah. the human. Yeah. So, that, so that's, that's great. Here's another big kick I've been on lately. <laughs> and that is, I think that we have a lot of false beliefs about time in our society, in our organizations, in the business world. And I think this is part of what this is getting at, right? Is that one of the advantages of something like a nine box or a force curve or, you know, whatever else is that it simplifies the world, which as busy professionals we need, right? And so it just makes our life easier. Like there was a performance system at the university where I'm at now that um, I don't know if this story is true. It might be apocryphal, but one of my colleagues was a, a department chair and was like, just in love with this performance thing that basically reduced everybody to a single number because then he didn't have to like actually read their papers and figure out how good their research was. And he didn't have to, you know, do all this other stuff, right. It made, well, in a busy world that is, there's incentive for like oversimplifying things. I remember, um, Back again at the turn of the century, um, Carl Weick was giving a speech and he quoted somebody, I don't remember who it was, who said, isn't it ironic that the very words Y2K is actually replicating the problem that created the Y2K problem, right? We cut off the numbers <laughs> to make it simpler mm -hmm. and now the world's going to blow up if we don't go back and fix all the computers and their numbers and so how do we talk about it? By abbreviating the year 2000 into Y2K, doing the same thing that created the problem in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot of things that we, um, you know, Leslie Perlow has some great research on the topic of how we socially construct our time and our beliefs about time. And I have found that when I slow down and take the time to do things right, that somehow I managed to get things done, right? And, you know, maybe I cut out less important things, or maybe I learn how to break out time so that I'm interrupted less, and I can therefore get more done in the amount of time that I have. Or, you know, there's so many ways to reconstruct our time, but instead we just get slaves to the idea, I have to do this, I have to do this, get through my task list, check off the things, you know, and, and it's not going to work out. My life is going to blow up if I don't get these next three things done in two hours. And most of that's not true. Most of your most important decisions you could put off till tomorrow if you had to, right? Or whatever it is. But we just believe this so strongly. And when it comes to people, it's uh, 
it takes time, right? Like humans, humans take time. And, uh, and as managers, we sometimes want to want to rush through that. But at the end of the day, uh, that may not be the thing you want to rush out of all the things on your plate. That may not be the thing you want to rush. Um, so, right. I'm just curious if I'm let's say I was the head of talent for a company and I wanted to just rethink. I wanted to just rethink the performance management system altogether. You've been studying kind of these positive the, the positive deviance, right? Mm-hmm. Have you seen anything that's like, because at the end of the day, I really do need to see where my state of talent is and I need kind of a snapshot of that. So that, that's why we that's why we bring in these nine blocks and all this stuff. There's a reason we do it, right? Have you seen anything? I'm just curious, maybe you haven't, as who, who does this well in a way that doesn't put people in boxes, but still gets, I need to compensate people differently and I need to give opportunities differently. I mean, there are reasons we do that. So it's, it's kind of a conundrum in my mind. No, it is. It's a, it's a great question. And um, I don't know if I would hold anybody up as like the perfect example of doing these kinds of things. Um, But I do think that there are companies out there that have good practices to pick and choose from. Um, And so like one, for example, one of the practices that I've heard about that I love, and and there are different variations on this. um, The first place I read about it was at SAS, uh, the software um, statistical software company. And then um, another place I read about it was actually at Adobe. Um, where they got rid of the end of the year uh, 360 degree performance assessment thing and replaced it with immediate feedback, right? So basically training managers that like once somebody finishes a task or a project or whatever, you know, sit down and give them feedback on it right then, right now. And, you know, at Adobe, they called it check-ins and maybe the check-ins were based on projects or maybe they were based on just weeks or, you know, whatever it was, but you sit down and you check in with people. All right, how'd it go? What went well? What went poorly? How can I help you with this? And you'll notice that with check-ins, the inclination is you talk about the actions, right? So the labels that you're using are action labels rather mm-hmm. than, than person labels. And what that does is it frees things up so that at the end of the year, you can actually ask questions instead of like, how are we evaluating? We might still have some kind of quick summary thing based on all you've done throughout the year, keep record of it in your check-ins or whatever it is. But um, you can actually take the time that you would have spent going through 360 reviews where, you know, people are trying to remember what was somebody doing back in January, <laughs> you know, like, and how am I going to rate that or whatever else? And instead use it to actually assess the system. All right, should we change our system and make it better this year uh, in some way or, you know, reorganize people get the immediate responses, systems get the longer term responses. Um, that might uh, be one practice that people can do. I was actually talking to some folks from uh, Pepsi about this last week and, um, or maybe it was two weeks ago, but anyways, recently. And they, I mentioned this idea and they said, yeah, but if you're constantly doing check-ins on people, then aren't you micromanaging them? And I said, well, it could turn into that, right? That would be definitely a danger of a process like that. On the other hand, um, you probably would adapt it, right? So if you have a long tenured, competent professional, you might check with them every two weeks or three weeks instead of every week or every two or three projects instead of every project. And you might, you know, give them a longer leash, whereas somebody who's new or, or struggling with a new assignment or whatever it is, you do more frequent check-ins, right? And that's part of what it means to be a good manager. And um, so that, you know, becomes a, 
a way of turning it into a development system rather than just a, an assessment system alone uh, when you do that. So that would be one practice that comes to mind uh, off the top yeah. of my head. I love it. Um, so Ryan, I could I could talk to you all day about this and I, I'd have a, a ton of other questions, but I want to be respectful of your time. And so if, if we could kind of summarize what we ask at the end of, of, of each of our podcasts is, how do you leave people better or employees better than you found them? And I'd love to hear your take on that from as an academic. Um, how do you, what do you see as, as how people leave their employees better than they find them? Or you could yeah. talk about your own staff, whatever you choose to do. Um, so I think that the first thing I'd say, cause you know, I've, I've thrown out a lot of stuff here over the time we've been talking together. And, and um, I would say, the first thing I try to do is practice what I preach. Now I'll emphasize the word try because you know what? I just threw out, I don't know how many different nuggets over the past, you know, 45 minutes or whatever it is we've been talking. Um, and I'm going to mess up on some of those sometimes, but you know what? My experience is, is that when employees see me genuinely trying to practice what I preach about those things, then they're more willing to be forgiving when I don't, when I'm not perfect about it and everything that I do. Right. But, the question is, am I genuinely trying? And it shows, you know, as the Bob Marley song says, you can fool some people sometimes, but you can't fool all the people all the time. Right. <laughs> so the important thing is that you're genuinely trying. And if you are, they'll see it eventually one way or another. Um, and on those lines, like, I think it also gets back to me for, you know, what I said about this event based approach to leadership, where I look at individual situations. Like when I, want to lead, then I pause and I ask myself questions about virtues. And, and so like one of the things that I think is most important when it comes to virtues, and this is a, a taboo word in, in corporations, but do I love my employees? And obviously not in some creepy way or whatever else, <laughs> but like, do I genuinely care about them? Or is this just a word I throw around? Uh, do I see them as human beings? And Here's an interesting answer about this is I, I was once doing a training session for um, teachers, public school teachers, and I don't even remember what the topic was that I was doing the training on, but this one public school teacher raised her hand and she said something that I just think is so profound. She said, every morning when I wake up, I forgive my students. And I think that's profound because she doesn't see things as fixed. She sees things as growing, right? A lot of us could say, forgive your students. Why do your students need to be forgiven? They're just kids or whatever else. Uh, it's actually not about the kids. It's about her. She's saying love is variable. It goes up and down, right? And if I want to be a loving person, I need to refresh that. And the way I do that is by forgiving, right? Forgiveness is just how I change my state to be a more loving person. And so I can do that as a manager. Like, so I, and this is not just my own direct reports. It's also my bosses and my peers, right? So, you know, if my boss does something that, you know, hurts or offends me in some way, and it happens sometimes, do I forgive? <laughs> um, I'm going to leave that boss or that employee who, you know, disappointed me. Do I forgive? Well, if I forgive, then I'm more likely to leave that employee better off when we're done than otherwise. Right. And so um, that's something I have to revisit. It, uh, it's a platitude to say that, oh, I love people and it's always there. It's not. 
right? It's something that I have to refresh and reinvest in again and again, just like, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, I have to re-earn my authority to be a leader if I'm in a leadership position again and again and again. Well, that was the best nugget of all right there. <laughs> thank you, yeah. Ryan. What yeah, a pleasure thanks, to Ryan. talk to you. Wow. We are so grateful to Dr. Ryan Quinn for joining us today. Join us next time on the Human Centered Leadership Podcast as we continue to explore the question, how do you leave your employees better than you found them?